Stay hungry, stay foolish. Philosophers, theologians, artists, and boy bands have waxed poetic about the nature of love for centuries. But what does the brain have to say about the way we carry our hearts? As technology advances to allow us more focused examination of the intricate dance our brains do with our environment, we can use science to shed new light on humanity's oldest question. What is this thing called love? Today's guest dived into the latest neuroscientific research concerning love and sex and what it really means for the way we approach our relationships. Her book, Dirty Minds, retitled as This Is Your Brain on Sex, asked the age-old questions such as, what parts of the brain are involved with love? Is there really a seven-year itch? Is monogamy practical? How thin is that line between love and hate? How do our childhood experiences affect our emotional control, and who is at risk for love addiction? Her fantastic book offers an entirely fresh approach explaining all the ways the brain can make or break us in love. We welcome author of This Is Your Brain on Sex, The Science Behind the Search for Love. Kate Sukel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I found the book fascinating. And on this show, we talk a lot about new technologies and how they impact society and humanity. We've talked about habit-forming technology, for example, and touched on behavior and how it's driven by chemicals. But I have to admit, I never, ever thought about, until I read your work, how scientific elements of love, sex, and relationships are in the same field as how we are driven by chemicals. It'd be great to understand that a little bit today. But before we do, it'd be great to understand the background to love, because science has been trying to figure out this right back to ancient times. It's an interesting and complicated thing to study. I think If you ask anybody if they know what love is, they'll tell you yes, they've experienced it, they've felt it. But how do you, from a scientific perspective, operationally define that? Are we sure that, you know, what you think is love is the same as what I think is love? Is the love that you feel, say, for your mother the same as you feel for your partner or your child? Um, So it's complex right off the bat because it's one of these things that we, we feel that we know so well that is really integral to integral to being human and yet it's really hard to define put in a you know neat little box to study and so having something like neuroimaging which is a new technology that can help us look at the brain and what's happening in the brain when we are talking about love to maybe tease out some of those differences i think is a really powerful tool but i think one of the biggest problems or challenges to start with was just, what is this thing called love? You know, Cole Porter asked that how many years ago? And let's face it, if Cole Porter couldn't have figured it out with all his experience, what hope is there for the rest of us? I really take my hat off to the scientists who decided to take a deeper look once they could look inside the brain with neuroimaging techniques. As you tell us in the book, you came to have quite an intimate relationship with fMRI scanners, for example. Yeah, and I'm here to tell you, they don't call back, no matter how many promises they make. Um, But yes, so as part of this, because, you know, we can talk about love all day long, but we know that uh, it has its dirty little partner, sex, and there's quite a bit of overlap. And we know that sex is a drive. We know it's very important to help propagate the species. And very, very often, we tend to confuse love and sex. I think You'd be hard-pressed not to find a person who hasn't conflated the two once or twice in their own life. 
So I did actually participate in a study that looked at the female orgasm and the brain regions that are recruited leading up to and then through an orgasm. That's really interesting because you talk about the three separate elements of love, lust, the feeling of being in love, and then deep long-term commitment. And I'd love to get into them because lust, you'd say, is driven by those chemicals I mentioned earlier, our hormones, our genetic factors, our reptilian brains. It'd be great to get a real understanding of how that works. Well, interestingly enough, all of these parts are in our reptilian brains. And I think that's really fascinating because it suggests that love is a drive just as much as sex is. And to a certain extent, that does make sense, right? Because we're a social species. Um, when we're getting out in the world, it's, it's nice to have other people around to have our backs, to help protect us, get food, raise the offspring. Um, so it makes sense. But if we're going to get down to the nitty gritty of the brain areas, there are sort of three. Um, you probably remember from high school uh, science class, the hypothalamus. This is a very small region deep in the brain, and it is linked to sexual drives and behaviors. It's part of the endocrine system. It releases a lot of those important uh, hormones that are required uh, to feel desire, to have children, etc. Uh, and when you remove the hypothalamus, the, the interest in sex just disappears. It's gone. But this area is also connected uh, to another area. It's called the ventral pallidum. And this is part of the basal ganglia. And I know this, I'm just throwing like brain words at you, basal ganglia, ventral pallidum. <laughs> um, but if we think about the basal ganglia, they're sort of a group of really small regions. Again, they're deep in the reptilian brain. That means they're highly evolutionarily preserved. You'll find similar regions, not just in primates, but also in, in crocodiles. This area, the ventral pallidum, when we're talking about deep emotional attachment, the kind of you know love that you feel for somebody where you love being around them, but maybe don't want to jump their bones so much, or the way you feel about a child, this is the area of the brain that's going to light up. There is also a third um, section, and it's called the ventral tegmental area. So again, this is down in the basal ganglia. It's, you know, this the brain's reward and motivational center, highly evolutionarily preserved. But I think it's really fascinating that we see these three different regions and they light up for different, you know, sort of configurations of love. And when you think about it, these three things, you know, your sex drive, this deep attachment and this romantic love, they're really important, right? And you can think of every possible storyline on your favorite soap opera uh, whether it's neighbors or you know general hospital or what have you, you can explain it by these three different systems. You're in love with someone, but you're not physically attracted to them. Uh, you're happily married, but you can't stop thinking about that person, you know, in the tight jeans that works down the hall. These three areas they work together, but as the researchers who study them found out, they also kind of work against each other. So as much as from a societal perspective, we push this idea that. You go through puberty, you become sexually active, you fall in love, and you stay in love for the rest of your life. Mother Nature and our brains often have sort of a different idea. That's great, because when you're talking about that, I'm thinking about technology as well, because a lot of the stuff you talk about in the book, like dopamine, is a huge influence over our love and our feeling of being in love and the reward it gives us, etc. But they're also very, very similar to how we react to technology, to 
Facebook likes or whatever on social media, it's very, very similar reaction. And, and often people say it's like taking cocaine. You're so hyped up by it. You know, when Samir Zeki, who was the University of College London professor, first did his neuroimaging studies of romantic love, he took one look at the brain scans and said, this looks just like somebody who's just had a hit of cocaine. I think, you know, why we see these these overlays between drugs, between technology, between love, you know, dopamine, so often we talk about it as a pleasure chemical or a reward chemical. But really, a lot of the newest research is showing it's a learning chemical. It's there and it gets released in those, you know, great delusions that makes the stuff feel so good because it's showing us, hey, this is good stuff. This is helping us find a partner, propagate the species, feel good or even get stuff done faster. If you think about it, if you distill it down, the brain's main job is to try to predict what's coming next in the world to not only help you survive, but help you thrive. And so dopamine's there to say, hey, this is the good stuff. You know, eat, drink, be merry, play some Fortnite for tomorrow we die. (laughs) It makes a lot of sense to me that these areas are, are kind of hijacked in these ways for drugs of pleasure as well as for technology. As we sort of, you know, came out of uh, the forests and evolved into the human species we are today, our, our brains weren't really designed with the idea that we'd be playing lots and lots of, uh, I can't even think of a cool, I, I have a 13 year old who's addicted to Fortnite. So it's a lot of Fortnite all the time over here, but we weren't really designed with video games in mind or even cocaine, but we were designed with this idea that there are dangers out in the world we need to pay attention, and we need to propagate the species. And so many scientists have actually suggested that these reward areas, which again, they really are reward, motivation, and learning areas, get hijacked by these other things. It was one of the reasons I reached out to you is, firstly, it's a great book, but also you did this work to find out, okay, let's understand the brain on sex, the brain in love, but also more importantly, what can we learn from this for the other parts of our lives? Right. I think it's important. You know, the brain, it doesn't really do redundancy, right? We have this four or five pound organ sitting on the top of our heads. It's basically, you know, a huge mound of silly putty, but it's something that takes up 20% of the body's energy resources. It has to do double duty with all these areas. Otherwise, it would just be much, much too expensive to run. People like to say that porn is addictive, video games are addictive, drugs are addictive. And of course, we actually know that drugs are addictive. Um, But I think that so often we don't think about it in the context of how the brain learns, how the brain is supposed to do its work, and then understand that we don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's not that we should never use technology or ever look at porn or ever have sex. If you're looking at opioids, I would say probably we're learning that they are best avoided. But as long as we understand how the brain does its work, how these things are processed, I think it's easier to make sure that we're not having too much of a good thing and sort of getting over that line into those areas. Let's jump back into love then, because you talk about this dopamine in particular and the lessons you learned from it, because you talk about somebody who suffers from maybe from Parkinson's being a bit low on dopamine or maybe the receptors are damaged some way. And then equally, somebody who is just straight in love is down the, the kind of ADHD side of... Yes. So again, dopamine is a learning chemical. And for individuals with Parkinson's disease, what happens is, again, the basal ganglia, you know, I'm throwing the word brain word salad at you, but 
this is the part of the brain that is involved with motivation and reward. And so there's this one, another tiny part called the substantia nigra. And what happens in Parkinson's disease is these dopaminergic neurons just die off. That's, that's the neurodegeneration that occurs. And what you see is they lack a lot of motivation. Um, also, they make a lot of weird, risky decisions. Um, and then on the other side with ADHD, again, yes, you have this glut of dopamine. So you're looking all over the place. It's hard to focus. Or if you do focus, you become hyper-focused. And I think that when you think about that stereotypical person in love, and of course, we never think it's us, right? But your best friend has just fallen madly in love. And oh my God, they're so annoying to be around. All they do all the time is talk about, you know, their intended and how wonderful they are. And oh my gosh, do you think they're, they're mad at me or is it okay? Am I texting too much? Or am I texting too little? Am I doing that? You know, it, it becomes the only thing they want to talk about. All of a sudden their universe is centered on that person that they're in love with. And they're really quite annoying. And you see the same thing with a heroin addict. You can see some similar behaviors with ADHD. I'm not saying this to pathologize love, although again, super annoying. I'm saying it more to understand that there's a method to the brain's madness in this case. It wants you to be so you know, in love that you'll consent to a rather expensive biologically, but also personally, financially <laughs> proposition, which is having a child together, propagating the species. You have to be kind of dumb to do it because if you think about it really intellectually, given the risks involved, it's a lot of, uh, lot of headache for uh, very little uh, time up front. <laughs> and so so I, I'm thinking back to what you said about us evolving from caves and amygdala and basal ganglia. So those kind of, let's call them fossilized elements of evolution that are, are baked into us, but also are really important to drive our behavior. Dopamine is our curiosity, drives us to go out and look at, oh, shiny new thing. So that could be a partner. But then you talk about the importance next of oxytocin, described as the chemical. Cupid brings us together or drives us together both as a tribe, but also mother and child father and child, but also partnerships as well. It really drives us together. It'd be great to get an understanding of that one. So oxytocin is, we say neuropeptide, but it's a little protein that goes around in the brain. And, you know, people like to talk a lot about it's the cuddle chemical or the cupid chemical. And, you know, certainly it is something that helps to facilitate social bonding. You can get it from giving somebody a hug, from calling your mom, from petting your dog, from getting a massage. It's also released when mothers are breastfeeding their children. So it helps to facilitate that bond. A lot of people give it a little bit more power than, than it should have. After all, it's a chemical, uh, you know, it's a hormone. It's not a person. It's not some Greek god there to, to put people together or what have you. Um, but it is something that not only facilitates those bonds, but also helps to you know, make you feel calm and connected. It's a major driver in that. And when you think about it again from, you know, not just coming out of caves, but all right, you've fallen in love and you've overlooked that chap's completely annoying habits to decide <laughs> to have a baby with him. Well, now you need to have that oxytocin there to solidify the bond when, you know, there's not going to be that much time for, uh, you know, sex and the fun stuff anymore. 
you're going to carry an infant for nine months, and then you're going to have to raise the bugger for 18 years. Um, oxytocin is really there to make sure that uh, once we have our babies, we don't leave them by the wayside. They're also there to help you know, our partners stick around, male partners, because a lot of them don't have to, to raise those offspring, especially in the early years when it's really important to have somebody to help chase away predators and or you know, help share some of the workload. I thought about this. I love the way you said that about the caveman or the animals that we are, because if you think about that and you hold that at the top of your mind and you go, okay, so these chemicals on our brain and our ancient brain, our amygdala, is driving a lot of our behaviors. So, like you said, the risks, particularly back in the day when there was no hospitals or hospital hygiene was horrific and lots of people died in childbirth, the risks of having a kid were massive. So, how do you override that? So, the chemicals do this. But then, I thought about further down the line, so you have your child Mm -hmm. and then the mother's bond becomes with the child. Does that bond driven by oxytocin, replace the husband? Because oftentimes you'll hear husbands feeling they're no longer their wife's husband, they're their child's father. And that bond between mother and father grows. And you said that, you you touched on it there. How do you keep the partner interested to stay around to protect you during those early years? So I'd answer that in two ways. The other thing I'd say is oxytocin is not limited just to children and partners, right? It's we're, we're a social species. That is also something that's going to help keep, you know, our mothers uh, around, our, our sisters, our cousins, so that we really do have that village to help raise the child, which again, also really important when you think about back to those caveman days. But we remain a very social species that, that needs support for, from our families and friends um, to help undertake w- just uh, a monster task, uh, no pun intended, except if your child is acting out right now. Um, but, um, you know, in terms of replacing, you know, uh, this was a tough one and it's a hard thing to study because I, I don't know that many men would necessarily be feeling all that romantic if they had just pushed bowling ball out of uh, some of their nether regions. So, I I mean, obviously, I think there's probably something that Mother Nature had in mind for a rest period, right? Um, So that you can uh, breastfeed the child, help get the infant off to its bed. You know, I I think that having a break there makes sense. If you were totally into your partner all the time at the expense of the child, the child probably wouldn't survive. Mm-hmm. So there's probably something a little in there, but I, I don't want to say that it's always the case. And again, when we look at the brain, and this is, I think, one of the most fascinating things about these things is that your mileage will, may vary, right? The brain is really neuroplastic. That means it's very flexible uh, and it's there, to, again, to predict what's happening next in the world. And so by slight tweaks to your behavior, whether it be making sure to have some alone time with your partner, even after the baby is born, Um, whether it's that if you're that partner, you know, taking over a couple nights a week, so your, your, uh, wife or girlfriend can get a few hours of sleep or, you know, give her a break. That's probably going to help cement that bond and, and help bring some of that sexy stuff back. Take it a bit further than in a relationship. So you're together a long time. You've had your children or your children are on the way up, but you have drifted a little bit or you've fallen into a routine. And I thought about dopamine's role here because 
I've read before that you need to mix it up. You need to go to new places. You need to experience new things together to keep your relationship going because of those dopamine releases, which are related to the experiences you have together as a couple. Yes. Novelty helps. And in fact, you know, there hasn't been a lot of work looking at this because, you know, prairie voles and rodents, uh, they don't necessarily go out on dates per se. They tend to just end up in the same cage and start getting it on. Um, (laughs) Also, they don't live for seven years or what, you know, what we refer to the seven-year itch or what have you. But you know, a, a lot of um, studies that look at the qualitative aspects of what make, you know, kind of keep things going that way um, or keep things fresh, it really comes down to you know, spending time together. It comes down to trying new things, not letting yourself fall into the rut, just putting a little extra effort on both sides so that you have those, that kind of novelty. Um, you know, a lot of the qualitative studies also look at you know, kindness and, and thinking about your partner above yourself, but of course, both have to do it. Interestingly enough, you know, there have been studies that have looked at brain activation patterns of people who have stated that they are still madly in love after a few years, and their brains do look exactly the same um, as those who are newly in love. Um, And if we could figure out why that is, what they're doing, I'm sure we'd bottle it. Um, It probably varies from couple to couple. Um, But you know, the neuroscientists have seen that for most of us, after about two years, it's not just us that's getting tired of our partners. Our brains are getting a little tired of them too. But again, since we can react to our environments, we can sort of do things to release more dopamine, spend more time. We have um, reactive desire, which I mean, I'm not saying that you should you know, do it if you don't feel like it, but sometimes, you know... Uh, you know, you may want to think a time or two before necessarily saying no. Uh, it might be good if you, you, you want to and want to keep going. So I, I think there's a lot to unpack there. And it's hard to give a pat answer. People want, give me, give me a, uh, you know, a checklist of these five things I can do to keep my relationship going. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, science can't give us that. Yeah. You mentioned prairie vaults, and I loved what you talked about in the book. So you talked about the kind of role of oxytocin and vasopressin here and the chicken and egg relationship between them. So, yeah. So if oxytocin brings us together, we have vasopressin. And they again, everybody wants to give stuff a cutesy nickname. So instead of vasopressin, they want to call it the monogamy, uh, you know, chemical, um, which is really kind of unfortunate because vasopressin is also a chemical that's really important to like vasoconstriction and cardiovascular health. I guess on one hand, I suppose you could think of the two as being related, but really it's, 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 you know, constricting blood vessels, not really romantic. Um, but yes, so this really great work by Larry Young, he takes prairie voles. They're basically, uh, a Midwestern American version of a mouse. If you saw one in your kitchen, you'd try to exterminate it. Um, but they tend to be, or at least one, uh, you know, s- species of prairie vole is not socially monogamous. They pick one partner, they stay for life. Um, of course, in the wild, when they've done testing, they've found out that they aren't quite sexually monogamous, but let's let's leave that over to the left for now. Um, but Larry Young at Emory University, uh, he used genetic um, engineering techniques to create mice that um, either didn't, you know, basically didn't have vasopressin receptors or had too many of them. And what he could do with these, you know, 
socially monogamous mice is is that they he could turn it off. He could turn them into little prairie vole Casanovas, not going back to their partners, not making those same kind of bonds um, by just a flick of the switch. Interestingly enough, then there were researchers at the Karolinska Institute who looked at sort of the the corollary gene in humans for this, you know, vasopressin receptor. And they found that these guys, you know, were much less likely to be in a happy monogamous relationship. They didn't ask about cheating per se. They asked about sort of other things. So we can't make a, a, a sweeping statement, but um, they tended to be less satisfied in their relationships and they tended not to be monogamous. And so it was really kind of an interesting finding that, no, it's not deterministic. It doesn't mean that certain people, just because they they aren't, their brains aren't sucking in enough of uh, this vasopressin that they're always going to stray. Um, but there is this really nice analog between um, this one chemical receptor uh, in prairie voles and in humans. And, and something that, you know, it is worth further study. What is it about these particular receptors that make it so we do want to stay, um, you know, in a committed relationship with one animal or one person over another? Yeah, and this is the beautiful thing about your work because it raises all these questions and it starts the conversation. You mentioned the prairie voles there and being little Casanovas, but you also mentioned in the book a monkey named Casanova. So we already know that women can handle their stuff, right? But Casanova was a, a male. He was um, This is at the Yerkes Primate Center um, where researchers are, are looking at you know the brains of primates and, and how they, they interact socially. So he was a male who was just being introduced to the group. And you have to understand that um, what you do is important. When you get introduced to an already, you know, established social group, you got to watch your P's and Q's. It's probably almost like being at your first day at work, right? You don't immediately walk into your new office and, you know, start doing shots and showing everybody your butt. You can't do that. You might be ostracized. But it's very, very important for males. Leave that to the week six, maybe. Not, not the yes, first day. Yes, exactly. You know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this this male, um, you know, primate was being introduced to the group, um, and as soon as he sat down, it's like fresh meat. The females kind of came over and started making a play for him. But here's the thing: if he picks the wrong female to meet with, maybe one that's a favorite of you know one of the biggest other monkeys in the group or somebody who's related to, um, you know, one of the leaders of the group, if he makes a mistake, not only is he going to get thrown out of the group, but he might actually get beaten to death. It's kind of a big deal. And yet here you, we hear all the time, you know, men can't control themselves. They, you know, they're just more sexual. You have a monkey who is literally getting flashed. They, Hey, baby, hit me. I'm ready. Signals from multiple females and is not acting upon them because he knows that his position within this new group depends on making the right choice. It shows that no matter how many hormones are running through your system, no matter what's right there in front of you, no matter how many vasopressin receptors you have, primates and humans, we have these giant frontal lobes, the seat of our executive function, the seat of our judgment, uh, our morality, our decision-making. And they can always kind of put the come in and put the kibosh on. You know what? This looks like it would be a lot of fun, but it's probably not in my long-term best interest. 
I love that, Kate, because it ties in so much with the ethos of this show, because we talk about stuff like mindfulness and meditation and that they're training those facilities. So you're able to slow down your decision and not be so reactive, but you can respond rather than react. Um, it'd be great to share one last thing, which is you talk about the effects of neurobiology and you share some research on sweat taken from people watching pornography, for example, which is fascinating. So basically, when they're looking at sweat, they're looking for amount of arousal. So, um, you know, so often we think that uh, because we're not the baboons with the bright red bottoms, you know, we don't give off signals when we are attracted to other people. But it turns out uh, we don't really have many secrets. We may not be able to consciously pick up these cues. But our armpits, our bodies are giving off all kinds of different sort of subconscious messages to the people around us um, about our health status, um, about our fertility status, about all kinds of other things. And so these little chemical messengers that we're releasing in our sweat, um, in you know, our faces being flushed, our lips, you know, they get picked up. Um, perceived by other people around us. And, you know, again, uh, the reptilian brain, it's not necessarily high on uh, overthinking things. It is high on reacting to things. It picks up these messages and can sort of figure them out. So one of the best studies, I think, is really, it's called the, the dirty t-shirt study. And what they did is they took a bunch of guys and had them n not bathe and wear a white t-shirt for a couple days. They then put those uh, those T-shirts into bags and had women smell them and then try to rate their attractiveness. And what they found was, you know, what people were attracted to, people had a type, they had a profile, and it was based a lot on these chemical messengers. Now, please note, I'm not saying pheromones because pheromones are a very specific type of molecule, and there is it's an ongoing debate whether humans give off pheromones. It may be that we, we don't necessarily give off pheromones, those particular molecules, but we give off other things that are very much like them, that signal to other people that we are fertile, we are ready, we are a good genetic match for really healthy offspring. Um, and I think that's fascinating as well. The idea that who I pick to, you know, who I say I'm attracted to, is going to be based more on sniffing, you know, a three-day-old T-shirt than looking at them. I think that's kind of surprising. <laughs> yeah, just a, a note from our from our sponsors. Uh, the Innovation Show white T-shirts are available online. <laughs> Absolutely, and <laughs> they're three days old. You can wear one for a few days and give it away as a prize. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Just keep an eye on the show for that competition. Zero entrance so far, but um, it, it, Kate, it'd be great to, to finish up on. You've done a brilliant job in this book and you've described it in simple language, which is a real skill. And thank you for that. But your desires behind it are much, much higher than explaining what, what we're like in love and sex, et cetera, what our brains are doing. You're looking for the lessons we can learn and apply to other things in life. You know, I think the thing is, is that one of the big things is that love is a drive. We're a social species. We want to connect with other people. Um, so I think that it's important to understand that, you know, we talk so much about sex guiding our behavior, but love does as well. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it's important to understand that these brain areas that are involved with love, 
again, highly evolutionarily preserved, and they are implicated in drug addiction, in our love of technology, in our desire to take risks and to learn novel things. So it, it can be applied elsewhere. But I also think really the most important thing is, you know, so often we're told that that what love is and whether or not we're lovable. I think one of the best things, because the brain is so flexible and because it, it is neuroplastic, each and every one of us is not only, you know, capable of love, but, you know, eminently lovable. It's just a matter of uh, kind of upping your end and meeting more people. So that person that thinks that there's no one out there for them, that they'll be alone forever. Your brain really wasn't designed that way. You just need to go out and meet some more people. Brilliant. That's a beautiful way to finish up, Kate. And Kate, where, where can people find out more about you and your work? Sure. So I have a website, katesukel.com. It's kind of a wonky spelling, K-A-Y-T-S-U-K-E-L.com. Um, and of course, you can find my books, uh, both uh, This Is Your Brain on Sex, as well as The Art of Risk at your favorite bookseller. And uh, barring that, of course, Amazon or uh, you know your favorite online shop. Author of This Is Your Brain on Sex, The Science Behind the Search for Love, Kate Sukel. Thanks for joining us. 